Hi, it's G3, and today I am pleased to be joined by Jordi Visser, Weiss's CIO and president, to talk about the hedge fund re-leveraging trend he's seeing and why it matters so much to his market outlook. For those unfamiliar with this concept, Jordi will explain it. And for those familiar with it, Jordi will discuss why conditions are ripe for market-neutral strategies that can take advantage of this trend. So please stick around and check important disclosures at the end of the episode. And with that, welcome. All right, we are recording. Jordi, great to have you here talking about hedge fund re-leveraging. We're going to find out what that means. And you have been talking about it quite a bit in the morning meetings and podcasts and webinars and all of the content stuff you do. And you do a lot of it. And monitoring hedge fund activity and repeatedly emphasizing that this year is ripe for market neutral strategies is something that I want to dig into today. So for this discussion, I want to unpack some of these terms that you have been using. And also, I have to say, from what I'm hearing from you, it is very different from what I see in some of the mainstream financial media outlets that probably a lot of our listeners do check in on. So let's just start with the basics. When you say re-leveraging, what exactly do you mean by that? Hedge fund re-leveraging is at the end of the day about risk-taking. Now, because Weiss is a market-neutral, predominantly long-short equity hedge fund, we do care most about whether hedge funds are taking risk. And Hedge funds is obviously a very broad term. So when I say equity market neutral, I'm going to say diversified, meaning hedge funds that have a lot of positions compared to maybe a concentrated hedge fund where their leverage is going up. So for every dollar on the long side versus every dollar on the short side, that combined number is a gross leverage. And I'm looking for gross leverage to be increasing. So when I'm seeing that, that is a sign of risk taking. And then I'll look at that as one signal of the health of the market. And why is the increase or decrease of hedge fund leverage important to you more specifically and this firm? Because sure, you can say it's a signal, but I guess what I would say is so what? Okay. So most people don't track this. So I can tell you if you go back and look at the years or the periods where hedge fund deleveraging stood out. You've got 2007 to 2009. You have 2010 to 2012. 2015 to 2016 and 2021 beginning in you know February into 2022. Those were all years that were really pretty much the worst years for the stock market overall. They weren't all down years necessarily. But those were all happening during events where there was other signs or correlations of the opposite of risk-taking, deleveraging. And so 2007 to 2009 was obviously during the great financial crisis, and it was happening. You had credit spreads widening. You had the VIX going higher. In 2010 to 12, you had the breakup of the EU risk growing with the Portland, sorry, Portugal, Italy 
Greece, Spain, the pigs. No offense to Portland, Oregon. (laughs) Or Portland, Maine, for that matter. Or Portland, Maine, right. 2015-16 was the unwind of commodities, and in particular, energy heading down from close to 100 all the way down to the 20s, and then 21 to 22 started with the GameStop situation, and stocks were still okay in 21, but if you look at any kind of hedge fund gauge, it was pretty weak in 21, except for credit was okay, and then last year we obviously extended the deleveraging. So when you have credit widening and you have the VIX going up and you have deleveraging happening, that's why it matters for risk taking. And generally it's a weaker time for stocks. And you said before that you follow this. What did you say about market participants? Like in general, how many Geordies are there out there focusing in on this? Positioning is really important on the hedge fund side. So all hedge fund people that I talk to, will follow it, but there isn't like an index that is a pure, oh, leverage has gone up today, leverage has gone down. So you have to kind of create proxies, which I've done over the years to give me a sense. And proxies are no different than other kinds of data. And I'll just kind of give you a a sign. If you want to guess who's going to win a football game, the game's already happened and you haven't seen the game and you want to figure out what data you should look at to see if it has happened, That's a proxy to me. So if I wanted to guess by asking two questions only on who won a football game in hindsight, I'd want to know the turnover differential and I'd want to know who had the most rushing yards, except for the obvious one of just touchdowns and things like that. Just data points that would help. And I think aside from hedge fund people, there's not a lot. And what they get is the score, meaning They get the prime brokerage numbers, which will say hedge fund leverage went up or hedge fund leverage went down. And that's fine as kind of a coincidental indicator, but I'm looking for things happening on a given day and week, which indicate that risk will be put on. So I love what you're talking about here. I feel like you're giving a little bit of the behind the curtain inside story about how decisions are being made. But for those people who don't have access to prime brokerage data, or for that matter, even a Bloomberg, right? Because, you know, a lot of financial advisors don't have access to a Bloomberg. A lot of individuals, of course, don't have access to a Bloomberg. What are the kinds of proxies out there that just regular folks can look to to get a sense of what you're describing here? These are the ones that I use and maybe, you know, I can put a video on for people to at least go see these so they get some kind of idea as to what these are. But first of all, right off the bat, Goldman Sachs has a VIP hedge fund index, which I'm sure if you don't have a Bloomberg, you can certainly get it on the website. And if you go get that index each day, what I do is I look at the movement in it relative to the S&P. I will tell you that the proxy that is probably the most important to me, if you're having crowded hedge fund long positions relative to the S&P, if that's working, for the most part, people use indexes as hedges in the hedge fund world in some form. And that's why most hedge funds benefit from beta is the S&P or the NASDAQ or the Russell 2000, some form of ETF or index ends up being some of the short side. And so as a proxy, the Goldman Sachs VIP index relative to the S&P is something I monitor. But there's other proxies that I use too, financials versus utilities. In particular, that's one I have right now, which is important to me. And there's really a reason So last year, in the first half of the year, utilities outperformed financials. As people were getting very defensive, there was deleveraging. And utilities and financials have a very 
nice piece to them that is good to normalize, which is rates. So they're both rate sensitive for different reasons. And so financials are outperforming utilities to me. That is a quote unquote risk on trade. And that is usually associated with hedge funds putting on risk as opposed to taking it off. Beta versus profitability or safety or quality. So when beta is outperforming, generally that means that hedge funds are Explain, give me two more sentences, if you could, on what beta means. Beta, at the end of the day, just means higher volatility names. So think of it as the simplest way a consumer staples company is low beta and a biotech company is high beta. So when beta is outperforming safety or quality or profitability, then generally hedge funds are increasing their leverage. Cyclicals, so companies that are correlated with business cycles. So think about industrials and materials and energy relative to defensive names. And again, getting into staples and things like that, which has a similar proxy to beta. So does NASDAQ over the S&P, which is one that anyone can look at. So if the NDX or the QQQs are outperforming the S&P, most of the time that is a sign that there's an increase in leverage. And then finally, small caps over large cap. Again, there's a beta component, but when you take all of those and you think about what happened in the first half of last year when the market was going down, utilities were outperforming financials, safety was outperforming beta, defense was outperforming cyclicals after a good start to the year, and then for the second quarter, it was a gruesome movement. S&P was outperforming NASDAQ, and large cap versus small cap was fairly neutral, but you still had large cap outperforming. So that's the way that I kind of use proxies on a daily basis. And if all of them are going the same direction, meaning they're all showing signs of strength, that's just a way for me to kind of look at the market and say, hey, that matches up with the VIP over the S&P. Hedge fund leverage is going up. Do you look at crypto as a proxy? Well, I look at crypto and one of the things, especially for this year, is I want to look at Bitcoin versus ARK versus the innovation index. And that's a trade that I think is going to do exceptionally well, partly because ARC is a pretty much US centric technology. And as I've talked about, I believe one of the themes to come out of this in terms of the new innovation is that web 3.0 and the blockchain will continue to impact mega cap tech companies, but also innovation names in the same way that chat GPT and AI, the acceleration of that is a global positive. It is a U.S. negative because of competition. So I view all of those as being a way to look at it. So I think crypto is going to do well in this because if risk taking is going on, crypto is definitely beta. And if you neutralize beta and look for a signal, I would look at Bitcoin versus something like ARK, which at least has a similar volatility. I'm glad you mentioned tech. There's obviously been a fair bit of deleveraging going on in U.S. tech. And of course, the deleveraging that has happened in China impacted a lot of large hedge funds and they had some rough times as a result. As you fast forward to today, what categories of hedge funds do you think are primed to benefit from the re-leveraging you've described? Yeah, this is an important point. And part of this comes from just conversations with people in the industry as to where flows are going. But part of this comes from the reality of just cycles that happen in terms of dollars flowing in. One of the things about leverage, so increasing leverage, decreasing leverage, we monitored at a hedge fund level, meaning hedge fund leverage. So think of it as an index relative to the entirety of hedge funds. But what it doesn't do is I don't have indications of where the leverage is. And I'll just give you an example. In 2007, there was a quant unwind, which was about value stocks. And that was a diversified hedge fund unwind that most people who were in the industry remember very well. 
in July and early August of 07. It was a signal to me and internally we had a lot of meetings after that was done just saying, hey, the deleveraging cycle, which has started in housing, is now extended into diversified hedge funds. Now, if you look at a value chart, particularly any kind of pure value, which neutralizes the sector impact, it peaked in June of 07 and went down. Now, last year, we had a concentrated growth-dominated hedge fund unwind that was also tech-related and also U.S. and China stock-related. And so, as you mentioned, I don't think that's coming back anytime soon. So that money where it was overinvested because of the outperformance that occurred during the decade of 2010 to 20 when the U.S. and China tech companies dominated everything, including the private markets, we still have a lot of money in privates that I think is going to have a hard time with kind of the repricing relative to what the, the market pricing is for the public markets. And the money is being spread into, quote unquote, diversified, uncorrelated alpha. And that means if you take a hedge fund that maybe has 50 to 60 names and had $10 billion with a leverage of say two to one, so $20 billion worth of positions. And that $10 billion is now flowing into a diversified hedge fund. Generally they have leverage that'll be higher. Let's assume it's five to one as an example. Well, that means you're taking 10 billion, which is equivalent to 20 billion of only 60 names. And you're putting that 10 billion into a hedge fund that maybe has a thousand names all of a sudden now you're getting $50 billion in the market, but it's being spread over a thousand names. And that has different alpha generation qualities. And so I think diversified hedge funds are going to benefit. And I can align that with what I'm hearing from the people we talk to in the industry, from the allocator perspective, but also from the prime brokerage side and where people are interested. Portable alpha or uncorrelated alpha is becoming more important because I don't think people are as comfortable with stocks and bonds as the bulk of their portfolio, they want something that's uncorrelated to those two. Because last year you had hedge funds down, you had stocks down and you had bonds down. And I think there's a growing need for people of some kind of diversified alpha, which is not correlated to stocks and bonds. But it really does seem like an incredible canary in the coal mine in terms of sort of pointing the direction as to where you should go. What does it say as it relates to geographies that you think are most likely going to benefit in the course of the year and onward? Well, you and I have talked about this, and this is one of my, I'd say, important outlooks for the next five to maybe even 10 years. And I don't like to think about things that 10 years, but these cycles usually take a long time. And I've referenced that when Japan kind of went through its bubble peak in the late 80s, they were over 60% of MSCI world. It was an overweight of about three to four times their economic impact on the globe. They were about 15% of the global economy, but 60% of stocks with inside allocators portfolios. The U.S. is at a similar place where they're in the 60% up to 70, depending if it was large cap and depending whether you look at ones without China. And our GDP is somewhere in the low 20%. So I think this unwind, which is dominated by U.S. tech, is going to take some time. And so people are overweight. So I see the U.S. as being, as I call it, the funding side of this trade, the great global rotation, where money is going to leave the mega cap tech names slowly and weakly and constantly, and it's going to be spread into other places. When you add in the fact that inflation is going to be higher than it was uh, and bond yields are higher, what you're left with, and we've seen this this year, value continues to work. DAX over the S&P has been a great trade. So Europe's doing well. 
if you compare where European PEs are versus US PEs, it's just not a comparable thing. And so things like earnings yield, buyback yield, dividend yield, if you're starting from a PE of 10 versus a PE of 18, as long as your growth is going to be okay and you're not going to be in recession, which is where the estimates are for Europe this year, they've got a major discount to US stocks. And when you separate the industrials and energy and material and financials names, and then you're just left with the tech names. There's a reason why the NDX, which has a PE, I think of this year around 24, 25 versus the S&P, which is 18. U.S. tech names to me are going to have a harder time in terms of dealing with this. So I like emerging markets. I like Europe. Asia in general is the growth leader. And I think Asia X China, because of China being quote unquote, a difficult place for people to invest. If you want to trade it, be my guest. I think Japan is okay too, but I would really be focused a lot on Asia, ex-Japan and ex-China as kind of the other region that includes India too. But what is interesting here is if you're talking about a handful or two of U.S. tech names where the air is going to come slowly out of that balloon and that money then will flow throughout the world, it's far more distributed. So it's going from a fairly concentrated place to a much more decentralized place. Yeah. And as I've said before, I mean, just use Apple's $2 trillion market cap. You know, when I'm doing MSCI world percent relative to your economic contribution to the world, the scary thing about Apple is, let's see, the US, China, Germany, Japan, maybe the UK, there's not many countries in the world that have a GDP bigger than the market cap of Apple. There's not many. And I think that has to normalize. And it's not a question of whether Apple's business will continue to be there and do well. They're a huge company. They're going to sell lots of phones, but it gets really hard. And I think the money is going to go into places where the multiples are lower and that benefit from inflation. And that's not U.S. technology stocks. So the HRV on big U.S. tech stocks are probably going to go down. Yeah, it'll be a tough HRV uh, decade for uh, for tech stocks. That's right. Unhealthy. For those people who didn't get that inside joke, we would encourage you to listen to the two-part episode that Jordy did with Sultan Medji recently, and then you'll, you'll get it. <laughs> yes, they will. All right. Thanks so much, Jordy. Thanks, T3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.